two of the program. Thanks for tuning in. Of course, a reminder, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. And for the first time in about six months, I'm going to throw the phone number, the phone line out there if you want to call in. It's 609-910-0687. And, you know, if you want to call in, I'll get you up. Um, you know, some stuff going on in Major League Baseball. You know, we touched a little bit about the people, the players that are up for the Hall of Fame ballot this year. And, you know, uh, I didn't get to touch on Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and Frank Thomas. And I think it's something interesting to look at because you, you look at guys that – you know, you got you're looking at guys that uh, were probably Hall of Fame players. I see Maddox getting in, no doubt, uh, without a question. But you know, looking at stuff in regards to Glavin, you know, maybe Glavin may not be ready yet. He's a Hall of Famer, but just maybe not at the moment. Um, based on you know the players that are coming in, I can see people voting a, a guy like. Um, you know, guy like, um, you know, Maddox in before Glavin. It would be nice to see them both get in there at the same time. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you, it's something uh, interesting to look at. Frank Thomas, another guy who never got accused of doing steroids. There was never any proof that he did or didn't do steroids. But, you know, you look at, you look at his numbers. They match up there with what, you know, Bagwell did, maybe even better what Piazza did. Obviously, what Piazza did as a catcher uh, is something that was not, uh, was not duplicated. And, uh, you know, Frank Thomas is a Hall of Fame player based on his numbers. It's ang- I'm anxious to see if he gets selected this year and some of the other players don't, like a Piazza or a Bagwell. I think it's something that's, that has to be looked at a certain way. But once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. What I want to do is play a, an exciting interview that I had the opportunity to record the other day with a great pitcher in Major League Baseball history, and that's Jim Mudcat Grant. And Jim, obviously, you know, you know gained the nickname Mudcat very early on in his career. He came up with the Cleveland Indians in the early part of the 1950s. Uh, His boyhood idol was Larry Doby. He ends up becoming teammates with Doby with the Indians, gets traded to the Minnesota Twins. A funny story, an interesting story involved there in regards to that trade. Ends up becoming the first African-American pitcher to ever win 20 games in a season. Ends up becoming the first African-American pitcher to ever win a World Series game. He wins two in a 1965 season for series with the Twins against the, the Los Angeles Dodgers. But a lot of great stuff that we get into. I'm actually excited to play this interview. Um, that I recorded with a great pitcher in baseball history, maybe a guy that you know you got to kind of got a jolly remember memory to remember how good he was. And so hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with longtime major league pitcher for the Indians, Twins, Athletics, Pirates, uh, Montreal Expos, couple other teams throughout his career from 1954 to 1971, and that's Jim Mudcat Grant. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former major league pitcher Jim Mudcat Grant. Jim, what's going on, man? Good. I, I can hear you pretty good. No, that's good, man. And of course, you know, Jim, you obviously had a, you know, a very long major league career. You know, you came up um, when you were drafted, when you were signed as a free agent by the Indians in the 1950s. Tell us a little bit about, you know, being signed and then your, you know, your path through the minor leagues before you came up. Okay. Well, you know, um, uh, it was different. You know, back uh, when I first started my career in 1954, uh, for 53, I had enrolled in college and, and decided to uh, try baseball because I happened to be in the library at Florida A&M University and I, they had some um, uh, information. I am on the telephone, Cody. Okay. 
and well, that's my wife. Today is her birthday. Uh, but um, I decided to try um, on baseball because uh, amazing in English and English teaching was making that very much um, uh, back in those days, and there were discrepancies between. African-American teachers and, and other teachers, and, and African-American teachers wasn't making that much, so I thought I'd try a little bit of uh, baseball. Uh, I went to spring training. There was no draft in those days, so I was a walk-on. Uh, and uh, back Hank Greenberg uh, decided that uh, I should uh, be a walk-on at that time because uh, what had happened is that the Indians told me to come back uh, and Hank Greenberg happened to walk up and say, who we have here? And they said, well, we have the same grant. We have scouts up at uh, Florida and m uh, but we couldn't find him. And lo and behold, he walked in and I, we told him to come back in six weeks. And Hank says, well, why uh, have him leave now? Have him just stay in the barracks until the rest of the guys show up. And that's what I did. And um, I, um, uh, we had some uh, AAA ball players that was there, and we had some uh, uh, major league ball players that was optioned from uh, spring training uh, in Tucson, Arizona, where the Cleveland Indians made the club stay. And I shined shoes, and I was a gopher. I went and got sandwiches and playing cards for them to play with, and I sat and watched them. And when the rest of the people came in, um, I uh, had my tryout. And lo and behold, at the end of spring training, I was sent uh, to Fargo, North Dakota, uh, because uh, their class D uh, team, in fact, I should mention that they had class D, C, B, A, double A, triple A. Uh, and the uh, D team, ordinarily, first year players would go to. I couldn't go because it was tricky in Georgia, and Georgia didn't allow um, uh, riding baseball players to play together. So they sent me to Fargo, North Dakota, where uh, it, I, I could play at that time. Yeah, understandable, man. And you know, for, you know, the unfortunate things that were going on at the time, and you know, obviously, you know, you got a chance to pitch down in uh, Fargo, North Dakota. You, you know, you came up there. You know, you won 21 games your first year at age 18, which you know, uh, obviously had to you know feel pretty good at that point. But you know, you still had some things to work out. You know, to control a little bit. So you know, as you go through the next couple of years, tell us a little bit about you know your development as a pitcher. You know, after your first year from being age 18 and up until you made your major league debut in 1958. Well, back in those days, we were lucky enough to have some roving pitching coaches, and um, uh, they were Spud Chandler, ex-Yankee, uh, and Red Ruffin, who was an ex, uh, uh, ex-Yankee. And uh, they roved the minor league systems, and they taught us some things, and they came in uh, three or four times a year. And um, um, I got some pretty good instructions from those guys, but uh, for some reason, even though I wasn't a pitcher, uh, and I only pitched a little bit in high school, but for some reason, I could throw strikes, and that's what helped me in my first two years. Um, when in uh, look at the year there in Fargo, it was Class C, 
Now, you end up making your major league debut in 1958, and, you know, beforehand, uh, you know, apparently you, you had acquired your nickname, Mudcat. You know, tell us a little bit about the story about how, you know, how you picked up the nickname and how it stuck with you through all these years. Well, actually, uh, in the walk-in situation, um, they had a route um, that was called Iwo Jima from, uh, from the barrack uh, to the clubhouse. And you had to face a lot of chatter, and you were called all kind of names on that trip from um, the barracks to the uh, clubhouse. Uh, it was some old Air Force barracks that the Cleveland Indians rented for minor league um, uh, fields and, um, and, and, and stuff like that. And um, um, being an African American uh, at that time, uh, well, not only at that time, but being an African American, uh, on that trip uh, to the uh, clubhouse, uh, you faced a lot of conversation, and uh, uh, you could hear them talk as the scouts would take all players down that trip. It was a long side road like type of thing and somebody said it looked like he was from Mississippi and uh, <laughs> another guy named Leroy Bartow Irvin said well uh, he's a Mississippi mudcat and uh, I you know I didn't pay too much attention but uh, when I walked on the field uh, people started just calling me mudcat for some reason uh, maybe God had something to do with it but <laughs> Uh, that was how I got that nickname. Uh, it wasn't Jim Grant. In fact, my mom, they wrote an article about me after about three and a half weeks, and somebody sent it to my mom, which was about 90 miles away. And um, she wrote me a letter. She said, son, she said, check out this mudcat Grant. Say he may be from Kentucky. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote her back. said, mom, that's... They're talking about me. She said, no, no. She said, your name is James Grant. I said, well, it's one of the same. <laughs> so that's how I got the nickname my cat. Now, I tell you, all, through all these years, I mean, it's something that, you know, you mentioned, you know, you got used to pretty, you know, pretty early on. It's something that, you know, you've always felt comfortable being referred to as, right? Well, in the beginning, you know, I didn't because of the way that it was presented uh, uh, to me. But as time passed, uh, I got to the point where I really loved it, you know, and by the time I got to the major leagues, uh, all of the entertainers that Larry Dovey introduced me to, because he was my first roommate, uh, the Duke Ellington's and the Moms Maybelline, the Count Basie, the Sarah Barnes, uh, it was it was crazy, but then you know they say you must be mudcat. They seemed to really enjoy the fact that a nickname uh, was there, 
mentioned that you know your roommate you know your roommate was Larry Doby and obviously he's a guy that I'm sure you know meant a lot to you as you were coming up and you first started playing baseball obviously Larry Doby the first African-American uh, ball player in the American League uh, you know tell us a little bit about you know you know what you thought of Larry Doby coming up and then your opportunity to actually get to play with and room with him well it was it was another one of those really strange um, circumstance because um, back home I, I used to carry the Pittsburgh Courier and the New York Amsterdam News uh, which were national newspapers back in those days but um, uh, I would carry those newspapers and deliver those newspapers back in the day and then when um, uh, Jack Robinson 1947 became uh, a Dodger um, I um, uh, was the first one to know because I read it in the newspaper. Uh, and uh, all of the kids uh, that played a little stickball and all that stuff, they were uh, uh, Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson, and then Larry Doby. And all of a sudden it hit me. I don't know why it was Larry Doby who was my hero. But I got chased home every day because uh, uh, everybody was Jackie, Robbie, Jr. And I said, and I'm Larry Dolby, and I had to run like the Dickens back home because how can you not be Jackie or something like that? And uh, lo and behold, eight, nine years later, uh, I came, uh, um, I joined the uh, Cleveland Indians as a minor league, and then Went to spring training two years later, after going 40 and 8, went to spring training with the Indians, and they told me I was going to room with Larry Dover. I said, no, 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 I can't room with Larry Dover. I was scared to death, but I did room with Larry before I got to the majors, and then they traded him. And when I got to the majors in 58, uh, they got him back, and he was also my first roommate in the major league. No, I tell you, that's fascinating. I'm listening to John Pielli here with Jim Grant, Mudcat Grant, former Major League pitcher, and obviously uh, Cleveland Indian, Minnesota twin. Now, you know, as you, as you end up going through, you end up getting traded in the 1964 season, and you know, there's a, you know, it was a you know interesting story about it, about the way you were notified that you were traded to the Minnesota Twins, right? <laughs> yeah, that was really odd because. Cleveland was hurting for money at that time, the Cleveland Indians were, and um, they had to meet a payroll, and the ball club was decent, but it wasn't that good, and um, the fan base wasn't really strong, so they needed money, so they traded me uh, to the Minnesota Twins. The only thing was that the Minnesota Twins was in town, and I came to the ballpark, um, uh, that Sunday uh, morning, and um, um, I didn't have any stuff in my locker, and my locker was like empty. And I had the clubhouse guy, I said, Where? Where's my stuff? What you do with my stuff? Uh, and, and the locker next to it was empty, but it stayed empty because that's where Larry Doby actually. 
actually it was. Uh, and uh, this is uh, it's over the other side. I said, what you mean the other side? It's over in the other clubhouse. Uh, I said, how could my stuff be over in the other clubhouse? They said, you were traded at 3 o'clock in the morning. Wow. <laughs> we didn't have a chance to talk to you, so I go uh, to the other Minnesota Twins clubhouse, and the first guy I met over there was Harlan Kilgrim. He said, well, we're, we're happy to have you. Uh, and then, of course, Tony Tom Alito was there, Bob Allison, Earl Batty, who was really a great friend of mine before then. And uh, so I get dressed, and I go out for batting practice, and that Cleveland Indians fan says, what are you doing? They says, why you left that uniform? Why? I said, I was training. They says, no way. <laughs> and that was the strange part about it all. Now, I'll tell you, and what's, you know, what's interesting about that is obviously you didn't have the communication, the way things are set up today, that, you know, I'm sure every now and then something like that happened. You know, the, the word of mouth, which was really the best way to spread anything like that that had happened, you know, was, was, was probably just the best way. So, I, you know, I can imagine, you know, you coming out on the field in a, in, Minnesota, in a Minnesota Twins uniform and everybody like, what happened? <laughs> I was different then, you know, you didn't have the type of coverage uh, then like you have now. Well, then like you had the years before. Uh, but people, they were, uh, I had become very popular in Cleveland, uh, and they were really upset. They said, you can't pitch no more at that pitch. Don't pitch. Because the manager, Sam Mealy, told me, he says, if I need you, would you mind pitching? I said, Sam, I said, last night I was a member of this ball club and I don't quite think I can handle it if I have to pitch all of a sudden to the Cleveland Indians because you got to remember uh, the, the history of the Cleveland Indians was really something that Luke Easter and Larry Dovis, the Dave Polks, uh, the Dave Hoskins, all of those great um, uh, old Negro League ball players who became major leaguers, who became our heroes. Uh, I was taken aback of the fact that I was no longer a Cleveland Indian. At that time, I didn't know uh, that they needed uh, money and, uh, and so forth. And they had gotten three ball players for me. Uh, I just thought it was the end of the world, the fact that I was not a Cleveland Indian based on my um, admiration to those old Negro League players who became the Cleveland Indian ball players. Yeah, and I tell you, you know, it didn't take you really too long to adapt. You know, you ended up pitching very well the rest of the 64 season with the Minnesota Twins. And, of course, 1965 comes. And, you know, you win 21 games. You lead the league in, you know, winning percentage, shutouts. And you end up pitching in the World Series that year. You know, tell us about the 1965 season. And obviously, you know, the Twins were a good team. You know, a lot of, a lot of the players that you mentioned, you know, had a lot to do with it. You know, tell us about the 1965 season and, you know, what it meant to, you know, get a chance to pitch in the World Series that year. Well, actually, on the 64 season, when I got over there in June, we actually made a run, you know, towards the pennant. There was no playoffs back in those days. But we fell off at the end of the season. We knew we had a strong, very strong uh, pitching staff, uh, me, Jim Perry, uh, Jim Cotton. Uh, and we go to swing training, uh, and um, uh, everything worked out. We realized mentally that we had 
a, a good hidden ball club, and they were going to score some runs. So it was just a matter of us um, uh, keeping uh, the scoring low against the opposing team. And uh, and um, uh, everything worked out right at the beginning. Um, uh, we started scoring runs, and um, uh, we pitched well. We had a good uh, bullpen, uh, so we knew we had a chance. Uh, the Yankees, uh, in fact, uh, our ball club was the first ball club to really knock off the Yankees to keep them from winning uh, the pennant at that time. Uh, but the Earl Batting meant a lot to me. He had uh, been in the major leagues for a couple of years or so, three years, and he was uh, one of the few African-American um, uh, catchers uh, that was playing at that time. I think Chuchik Coleman, who played with the Vance, um, um, uh, he came in a little bit later on. Henry came in, but we really didn't have African American catchers. And then early in my career, it was difficult because uh, it was like um, um, the black quarterbacks back in those days. They just didn't think that we could handle uh, um, uh, nine innings. That uh, we didn't have the moxie. Uh, to pitch or not to, to maneuver nine innings and so forth, and that's the way it was. But uh, but heck, uh, knowing uh, uh, Dave Hoskins and, and knowing Mike Garcia, uh, and uh, pitching through the minor leagues with a couple of other pitchers, with Earl Wilson and the minor leagues, and that we knew that if they gave us a chance, that we were going to be, we could be some pretty good pitchers. So. Uh, Earl Bad is certainly helped a lot uh, back in those days. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, John Pielli with Jim Cat Grant. Now, you know, you end up winning a couple games in the 1965 World Series. Of course, you know, a series you end up losing to the Dodgers, but obviously a significant moment because you became the first African-American pitcher to win a World Series game. You know, tell us a little bit about what, what that means to you and just kind of, you know, remembering what it was like to pitch in a World Series. Well, realizing now, uh, and Earl told me how difficult uh, that it was uh, for African-American pitchers uh, back in those days. And, and uh, as time went, um, actually I became much more confident. It's not that I wasn't confident before, but um, I just felt unbeatable during that season. And like you say, I, I became the first African-American to win 20 games in the American League uh, at that time. And I thought... I didn't think so much of that I had something to prove. I thought that um, uh, that um, I was on a roll uh, and I was going to prove uh, that I could become a 20-game winner. And then, of course, in the World Series, getting to the World Series, man, I was I was on cloud nine. Absolutely. Uh, I would have been satisfied with one victory, but I ended up winning two. I was trying to win three <laughs> because the Dodge Company gave away a dodge uh, call for the most valuable play, and I was really trying to do that, but I, I did all right with two victories. Now, I tell you, it pitched very well that year, and I tell you, you know, the, the, you know, the Twins had a very good chance of winning that series. Unfortunately, it doesn't go their way. You know, you spend a couple more seasons in Minnesota, and then you go over to the Dodgers, the Expos, the Cardinals, the Athletics. You start to move around a little bit. Uh, did did any of that ever get uneasy for you? For you changing between so many teams within about a three four year span? You know, not not really. You know. Uh, 
This had, there was a guy named Dave Mann who should have been a major league ball player, but he wasn't. Um, but he made a statement that uh, um, baseball players were something, some, some, something like three cars. We come and we go. Uh, trading was part of what was, life was all about back in those days. And it just so happened that uh, uh, as I was traded around, uh, my roles uh, changed to a relief pitcher. And uh, I am one of five and the first African-American to not only win 20 games in a season, but to save over 20 games in another season as a relief pitcher. So even though I moved around, I became uh, a relief specialist and I uh, helped Pittsburgh and the Oakland A's um, in their quest for um, for championship season also. Uh, so when they asked me to relieve, and uh, at that time, you know, of course, you, two innings or three innings was the most you were going to pitch, and I thought that was <laughs> that was great. You only had to pitch three innings. Uh, at the most, and then two uh, one in and stuff like that. So I became a relief specialist, and it was wonderful. It was great. Yeah, tell you, you know, 1970, you know, you start with the Athletics, you end up getting traded to the Pirates. You know, the Pirates, you know, your, your experience in Pittsburgh probably had to be pretty good, too, with all, you know, all the players that they had there, right? Man, when I got there, um, Danny Murtoff, uh, told me, he said, are you ready to go? I said, I sure am, because I had been in 77 games for um, uh, for the Oakland A's already before I got over to, and Charlie, he, he got a chance to make a lot of money off of me, and Pittsburgh had a relief pitcher, Dave Justice, that got hurt, and they were looking for somebody. And after I got over there, my job says, well, we need you. Uh, and uh, I said, well, I'm ready to go. And he put me in a game. The first night I got there, I was in a game. Uh, and um, uh, I gave up. Uh, we, we had a four-run lead, and I gave up four runs to try to score. And I came in, and I threw my glove down to my house. I said, what's the matter? I said, well, you know, I just gave up. I just got in. I just gave up four runs. He said, don't worry about it. We're going to score by 10. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. And sure enough, in two innings, we scored 10 runs. That was the, one of the, it probably was the best hitting ball club that I ever pitched on because they had Roberta Clemente, Willie Stardell, Al Oliver, oh man, uh, Richard Hebner. Uh, they just had, they had guys that could really hit. And um, I did a good job for him over there. Yeah, no, you definitely did. And I tell you, you know, you end up uh, going back to Pittsburgh in the 1971 season, and uh -huh. the Oakland Athletics end up purchasing you back, and you end up pitching in the postseason that year with the Athletics. And, of course, the, the, the A's had a very, a very good team then. That was kind of the beginning of their run they had. Of course, they won the World Series 72, 73, and 74. But, you know, it, it had to feel pretty special to be part of a growing team like that, in Oakland, right? Well, well, actually, you know, uh, you that was a loan deal. They they couldn't say it, but it was like a loan deal for a lot of money. And and, and uh, I was told uh, that uh, everybody, there were few people knew that I was going to come back okay. uh, to the to the to the Oakland at that time. Uh, 
it, the travel of it all was not good for me. I lost out on World Series money. I lost out on playoff money because of the way that the rules was back in those days. But nonetheless, uh, playing with that Oakland ball club was a good ball club and playing with Pittsburgh. That was good at the end of my career, so that was the way things were, and you had to go with it. Yeah, and I tell you, you, know, you touch on a good point. I mean, obviously Pittsburgh ends up winning a World Series in '71. You know, you get the opportunity, of course, to pitch in the playoffs with Oakland. So yeah, it definitely, it definitely had to be a little bit bittersweet. Yeah, it was bittersweet. Um, the only difficulty that I had was that uh, I had some problems with Joe Brown, the general manager uh, for Pittsburgh at that time. And when time came, uh, my name came up in terms of a World Series ring, um, uh, he made sure I didn't get a World Series ring. So there was a little bit of negativity there, but I was in New York at the Bad Dinner baseball assistant team, and uh, I was having dinner with Woody Stargell and Mrs. Stargell. And he noticed that I didn't have uh, a, a, a World Series ring. He said, what is your ring? Because I had on the Minnesota championship ring. I said, don't you know? He said, no. I said, um, they kept me from uh, uh, getting my ring. He said, we voted you a ring. I said, I didn't get it. And he, he looked and he said, my dad, you're going to get your ring. So thanks to Willie Stardew. Uh, I was at a dinner for a child abuse association and um, uh, had raised a substantial amount of money. And um, the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, with Willie's name on it, sent me that ring and it was presented to me at uh, the dinner um, uh, in uh, San Bernardino. And I wasn't expecting that. And um, um, when they asked me to come to the podium, I went to the podium and they said, we have something for you. And uh, they, they took this ring on and this big old walking world <laughs> this ring. I said, wow. <laughs> it was great. It was fantastic. And I wear it with pride right now. Yeah, I tell you, man, that, that's special. And I'm, you know, I'm glad you ended up getting your World Series ring. It was well-deserved. Listen, Jim, I want to thank you for having some time. I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. And, uh, you know, keep, keep up the good work, man. Thank you, my man. I appreciate it. Call me anytime. This is John Pielli. Hey, what's going on, man? John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Jim Mudcat Grant. One of the better pitchers of his time, obviously, everything that he went through with having to fight through uh, the, the segregation, which I know in the 50s it had been, uh, you know, changed. You know, African-American players were allowed to play. Jackie Robinson, of course, breaking a color barrier in 1947. But, you know, still some tough times coming up. And what Jim Mudcat Grant obviously meant to the game of Major League Baseball, being the first African-American pitcher to win 20 games, the first African-American pitcher to win a World Series game. And I tell you, man, you know, just the stories and getting his World Series ring with the Pirates, which, you know, you got to remember, he wasn't on the team in the playoffs, but he had pitched in 72 games for the Pirates that year. He was a reason that they were as good as they were. And he ends up getting traded near the end to the Athletics. And like he said, it was was something that was agreed upon before when he was traded to uh, you know from uh, uh, Oakland to Pittsburgh initially the year before that he was going to go back, and it was a money thing. And 
you know, he ends up getting his World Series ring, which is something that he absolutely deserves. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot with Jim Mudd, Cat Grant. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break here. Um, you know, one of this hour, we're going to touch on some bases, empty block stuff. And, uh, hey, if you want, call in, dude. We'll be back after this. MTR Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android market and iPhone app store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin, and you're rocking with the crew on MTR Radio. Welcome to MTRRadio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. You can put this together, right? <clears throat> I like to tap that app on MTR Radio. <laughs> uh, let's see. <clears throat> um... M-T-R. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android market and iPhone app store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> MTR Radio. Hey everyone, this is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android market and iPhone app store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> oh. MTR Radio. I love MTR Radio because of its uh, innovative direction. That's a bunch of <laughs> I love MTR Radio because they accept me. Ah, oh, you knucklehead. Hey, everyone. This is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Trending today on Twitter. MTR. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thank you guys for tuning in. And it's always great to, uh, you know, be able to talk baseball with, you know, a bunch of baseball fans. Uh, keep the discussion going. Tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. But uh, JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty Blog, the whole thing. I kind of touched a little bit about the Hall of Fame. And we talked about some stuff going on with, you know, players that were on the ballot before, obviously, the steroid era, everything involved in Major League Baseball. And, you know, you know, uh, you know, I kind of talked about my ballot a little bit and the players that I would have voted for last year. And, uh, you know, I, my, the guys I had in was uh, Bagwell, Biggio, Mike Piazza and Alan Trammell. And, you know, if you've heard me, you know about how much of an advocate I am of Alan Trammell being in the Hall of Fame. I, you know, the guy essentially duplicated Barry Larkin's career. I mean, he was Barry Larkin, but just played a couple years earlier. He won a World Series like he did. He was as good for the Tigers as Larkin was for the Cincinnati Reds. So if Barry Larkin's a Hall of Famer, Alan Trammell is. And, you know, I've given my my reasons for Piazza and Biggio and Bagwell, who are obviously all Hall of Fame players based on their statistics. And, you know, I end up, you know, with the players on the ballot this year. You know, I would expand it and go a little bit further. And we got, um, you know, with players like... uh, you know, Maddox and Glavin and Thomas, I would add them as well. 
and then on the Veterans Committee, of course, Ted Simmons. I've talked about how, how good of a, uh, a catcher he was and how he ranks up there with the best of all time. And, you know, right now I get the opportunity to be joined with, uh, you know, another uh, radio personality in MTR Radio Network, of course, is Wilson Casado. Wilson? Appreciate you coming in, buddy. John, thanks a lot, buddy. What's going on? And not much, man. You know, same old stuff, man. We're just touching on a little bit about the Hall of Fame ballot. And, you know, obviously you know about the players that are, are on there this year for the first time. Greg Maddox, uh, Tommy Glavin, Mike Messina, uh, Frank Thomas. Um, you know, anything really stand out to you in regards to first-time eligible players this year? It, it's a huge list. And I think, you know, me being 31 years old, uh, it kind of like these are the guys that I grew up watching right Absolutely. here. You know, so this is really like – the core of the the you know obviously the Maguires and the Bonds and stuff like that I saw those guys as well but now you're seeing more of the you know the generation that I kind of grew up with so it's fascinating to see that you know now I'm starting to get dated here uh, yeah. <laughs> and I get to see you know these guys that I totally grew up watching and I can talk about you know to to you know different generations whether it be you know my peers or some of the younger uh, you know baseball watchers and fans that that maybe didn't see a lot of these guys careers or maybe saw these guys at the tail end of their careers uh i, I can talk about that so it, it is an interesting time right now for for me as far as uh this is concerned yeah absolutely and i, I ended up you know guys like roberto alomar barry larkin you know really my first experience of knowing players that are going in that i absolutely followed their whole career start to finish and uh, you know i, I i'm going to transition this point into something that i touched on in the first hour you know, being a generation, let's say, later than a guy like Jack Morris, who dominated the 80s, was a very good pitcher, but numbers-wise, doesn't rank up there with the best players, the best pitchers of all time. Mm-hmm. Does that impact you in a way different? Not seeing Jack Morris's career, you've heard of him. You know, you, see, you may have seen you know some games towards the end of his yeah, career, but you know the the people that are in favor of Jack Morris being in a Hall of Fame say, "Listen, I followed his whole career. He was one of the better pitchers of the '80s." even though the numbers don't necessarily justify that. Yeah, I have no issue with that at all. You know, I know I didn't see the the, the era, uh, but I did watch him towards the tail end of his career, and I know he was a heck of a, 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 of a competitor, a, a heck of a baseball uh, player, pitcher, uh, and a teammate at that from everything that I've seen, you know, when he was, you know, at the tail end of his career. So uh, if people want to vote him in, you know, I have no problem with that at all. You know, they, they would know more than me. They watched him more. And, and, and a lot of times I know that, you know, especially, Especially in baseball, we get infatuated with the numbers and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think it necessarily always has to be that either. Uh, You know, a lot of people say when you say someone's name, you know, you should automatically know if he's Hall of Famer or not. That's what a lot of people yeah, that, say. And, that's, you know and I mean? that's the way I look at it, too. And I tell you, you know, Jack Morris to me, and I'm actually going to disagree with you a little bit. I wouldn't be... Uh, you know, in uh, you know, angry or upset if Jack Morris gets in the Hall of Fame, but I think we've gotten to a generation where, because of the steroid era, you've seen yeah, a series a of point. players go in that, you know, were very good players, mm-hmm. but you know, where is the line? You want to talk about the greatest players to ever play in the game, the greatest pitchers to ever throw in the game? Jack Morris's career, as good as it was, and as great of a postseason pitcher as it was doesn't rank up with the best ever okay. pitching a game. Mm-hmm. I understand that, you know, the, the, you know, it's gotten watered down to a point where, you know, players that I may not necessarily vote for, if they get in, I'll be happy for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I said that about Burt Blylevin, Andre Dawson, Jim Rice, guys who are very good players, but when you talk about the greatest of all time, 
you know, you really want to hold some uh, some standards. To yeah, it. I agree. And and you know, I th- I do think that because of a lot of things that have happened, particularly with the steroids, you know, the voters are kind of looking back and just you know remembering players that were very good but not, might not be all time greats. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, in regards to you know what what I just touched on before. I think that you know, you know, in regards to steroids, yes, you know, Murray Chouse has uh, you know gone out of his way to try to destroy Mike Piazza, but he's essentially been the only one that has has gone out there and tried to insist that Mike Piazza has done steroids, and there was never any proof. He never failed a drug test. He is the only one that's ever come up to make this story out to what it is. And when you look at what Mike Piazza did for his career, the greatest offensive hitting catcher ever. You know, and that's with guys like Yogi Berra and Johnny Bench. And, you know, you go back further, Bill Dickey and Mickey Cochran and, you know, the greatest hitting catchers ever, Carlton Fisk, you know, Gary Carter. He trumped what they did and was dominant for a very long time. Numbers-wise, there's no question that Mike Piazza belongs in a Hall of Fame. Do you think that this could be the year for that? Or do you think a couple more years are going to go by before they start acknowledging the guy for what he did? I'm not. I'm not sure. I personally think Piazza should be in the Hall of Fame. Probably should have been there. Um, was it last year? Was his first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's probably should have been there last year. Uh, he is one of those guys. Uh, it seems like there's. It seems like a, a personal vendetta or a crusade uh, against Mike here uh, by that by that gentleman. Yeah, and I'm not gonna. Yeah, yeah. And from his perspective, yes. But in regards to the baseball writers, I think they did go out of their way to try to take a stand and say that hey, if we in, if we induct nobody this year, it's going to show how serious we are about the players that did steroids. And you know that obviously you know includes a whole generation of players that probably didn't even know what steroids were that were still on the ballot. Mm-hmm. But you know, looking at looking at guys, I mean, you know, Craig Biggio's got three thousand hits. He may be a watered down candidate, but three thousand hits, 3, you know, hits you know, the rule you is, you know, essentially you're in. So I think he becomes a Hall of Famer and another guy that's kind of compared to Piazza with little bit of suspicion but no proof is uh, Jeff Bagwell. Yeah. You know, phenomenal career, was a very good hitting first baseman. Obviously in regards to the great first baseman of all time, he isn't Lou Gehrig. Nope. But put up some phenomenal numbers for a very long time. And you look at the numbers start to finish, you say he's probably a Hall of Fame player as well. So I would think that, you know, Piazza going in would probably coincide, you know, at some time with Bagwell going in. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. Uh, another guy is, uh, you know, you look at Frank Thomas in that era. Yeah. He's an, he's another guy. Uh, I I kind of, and I don't want to go too much off topic here, uh, but it's kind of the same general topic. But the, the writers here, I think, you know, not to say that they take it too seriously. That's their job, and that's what they're supposed to do here. But I'm not sure if they're, you know, the, the different agendas that the, these voters may have here, you know, kind of, you know, they stick out sometimes, you know, depending on who, who it is and stuff like that. Uh, I just think there, there could be a, a better way of, of nominating Hall of Famers. You know, it, yeah. it's... It, this is the the highest achievement that you the individual achievement that you can get for for a career and, and to put it in the hands of you know writers who have different agendas and you know different different type of things on their mind uh, i'm not necessarily so sure that that's still the fair way to go here now it isn't and i'll tell you you know like everybody has their own agendas you know the old time writers going to look at things differently than you know let's say a guy that watched Barry Bonds play in his career and say wow you know i i know that Barry Bonds is up there with the greatest players ever 
and you saw that him and uh, Clemens got you know more than a third of the vote. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that do want to acknowledge those guys for what they did, and I do think over time, and you know people have disagreed with me on it, but I think over time the the best players will get their due as this gets looked at as an era in baseball history as opposed to a black eye. Now, do you think that it happens within the you know 15-year eligibility? Or do I don't you think, think so. And I, actually, I'm, I'm going to lean towards no. I do think as, the, you know, just like a guy like Jack Morris, as the time goes on, they're going to pick up more and more uh, respectability with it. And obviously, you know, the unfortunately, some of the older writers are going to start dying off. But uh, one one more thing before I let you go, man. You know, Yankees signed Brian McCann. Big move for them. Uh, you know, where you know they you know they're interested and in, you know they want to get Tanaka. They want to get Beltran. You know, what, what do you, what's your outlook on the Yankees off season? Are you confident that they're going to be able to put a winning team together for 2014? Uh, yeah, by by. All the talk and all the looks of what's going on so far, and the McCann, you know, signing uh, started it. I do think that the Yankees kind of, you know, had a little bit of enough of the, you know, 189 million dollar talk, yeah. the missing the playoffs, obviously last year, and, and yeah, it was kind of close. It was what they would finish like six and a half games out of of a, of a playoff position, but that's not close enough. Uh, they understand that. They they look on camera when the games are going on. You see a ton of empty seats every single night. Uh, this A Rod thing is still lingering. I do think that they're going to go out there and. They're going to try to spend uh, as much as possible and still try to stay uh, somewhere near that $189 million. Obviously, the Robinson Cano thing keeps keeps things up in the air here as well. But I do think that the Yankees are going to go out there and try their best to, to, to field a, a real competitive team this year. Not just one that's uh, you know good enough to make the playoffs, but another one that's you know, to try to win a World Series with. Yeah, no question. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, you know, you just touched on Cano, man. Gun to your head. Is he a Yankee next year? Yeah, I think he's a Yankee next year. I think year. he probably will be, too. I mean, uh, you know, there might be some teams that think they might be in the mix. Obviously, the Yankees want to get the price down. They don't want to pay him $300 million, which, you know, he, he will not get in the no. end. And I think, you know, cooler heads will prevail. Robinson Cano will be playing second base for the New York Yankees. Wilson, I want to thank you for having some time. Appreciate you joining me. Yeah, obviously, you know, anytime. I'm here, bro. Pop on in. I'll talk baseball with you all day. But John Pielli here, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I got to play a quick interview that I recorded this past week with a former pitcher in the uh, Baltimore Orioles and Philadelphia Phillies organization, Joel Bennett. And, you know, this guy's actually a hell of a golfer. He's had a pretty good career going through the minors, dominated the minors, got a couple cups of coffee in the major leagues, and then spent the rest of his career in independent ball. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former major league pitcher Joel Bennett. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Joel Bennett. Joel, Joel, what's going on, man? How you doing, John? Good to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, same here, man. You know, of course, you know, you went to, uh, you know, East Stroudsburg over in, you know, Pennsylvania, and you had the opportunity to pitch with the Phillies. You know, tell us a little bit about, you know, coming up and, you know, ended up, you know, from the time you ended up getting drafted. Boy, it was a long, exciting road. I was drafted by the Red Sox. Six years in the minors with them. I made it to the 40 man roster, never got to the big leagues with that team. And, uh, you know, a lot of great friends, people I still talk to through them. And uh, then went through a little rough patch. Uh, got released by the Red Sox after doing well for a long time, just never really got an opportunity there. Actually, ended up going playing independent ball for a while um, after that. So it was, it was quite, a, quite a road. No, it had to be, and I'll tell you what. What really stands out, you know, is that you know you had a lot of success in the minor leagues. You know, you won, you know, well over 100 games. You, know, you had a very good winning percentage. You had a lot of success there. You know, uh, you know, I'm sure it was something you know you enjoyed while while you were pitching down there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every step along the way was exciting. But 
biggest thing was velocity. I mean, it was even in my bio, you know, in the big bio. Always keeps the team in the game, does a good job, great curveball, but lack of velocity. And that was always the big thing. But, you know, I had success all the way along and uh, got picked up by the Orioles. And that little change of scenery uh, helped me out a lot, you know. Did well at double-A. Triple-A, you know, at one point was 10-0. I had won the All-Star game before I got called up. There were five guys called up before me. And, uh, and, and again, the velocity thing, uh, like I got called from double-A. I was sitting next to Charlie Green, my catcher, and my pitch coach walked by, and Charlie even said, he said, what's going on here? Why are these guys being called up? And his answer was that the kid was still in 92. That was his answer. He's still in 92. So, they, you know, it, it, it was frustrating. It was all about velocity and how hard guys throw, so. No, I tell you, one thing that, you know, obviously stands out is, you know, you mentioned your curveball and stuff, and, you know, I'm sure you really were able to polish yourself, you know, to, you know, as far as command and stuff like that and changing speeds and stuff like that, so I'm sure that had a lot to do with the success you had, and, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, just because you didn't throw hard, you probably didn't get as much of a chance as you probably felt like you should have. That's exactly what it was, and I, I wasn't pitching. I used to any pitch, any count, and, you know, throws a lot of strikes, but not very many hittable strikes, and, uh, you know, I prided myself on that, and it was fun because uh, just, you know, you could see a hitter step out of the box and put his head down, and, you know, when he did that, you know he's thinking, and then you know you got him, so there wasn't a pitch they could sit on, and, you know, I just, I just loved competing, uh, you know, trying to outfox the hitters and all that stuff, so it was a, it was a good run. And once again, John Piel here, former Major League pitcher Joel Bennett. Now, you know, in 1998, you know, you just mentioned you got a chance to get up to the big club. You pitched in a couple games for the Orioles. Tell us a little bit about that experience and, you know, what kind of went through your mind when you finally got the chance to pitch in the big leagues. Oh, it was amazing. But if we're part of that, is I got two in two nights, I mean, blowout games. You know, that's when they put me in there. Uh, it was two weeks apart. Uh, so just, you know, staff a long time, but one of my first big league appearance. And now when I watch the movie The Rookie, I get all choked up because that's where I made my debut. It was the same thing. Sitting in that bullpen waiting for that phone to ring. Boy, it stops your heart. I don't remember leaving the bullpen. I don't remember running out. I do remember getting to the mound. I don't remember how I got there, though. <laughs> it was so much adrenaline. It was an amazing experience. It really was. Yeah, now, you know, you got in a couple games that year, and, of course, you know, you ended up, uh, you know, getting the chance to pitch a little bit for the Phillies the next year. You made three starts. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about that, because I'm, I'm sure at that point you probably felt like you had a little bit of momentum going that, you know, maybe maybe your time had come. I, I really was hoping because, you know, through those couple last couple years there, during the time when I got, was getting called up, had a lot of great success, and, you know, I go up there was chilling and, it's just amazing to, to watch him work. It really was. And just to see his work ethic and how he prepared himself. And, you know, my first major league start was in was in uh, Colorado. And for three days, the reporters, the only thing they said was, you know, you're not going to survive. You're a curveball pitcher. Curveballs don't work. What are you going to do? You know, that, that, that's all the, the only questions they had, not anything about, you know, welcome. It was, you know, how are you going to survive? And Kirk, after his game, you know, I was pitching the next day. He, he just said one thing. He said, "Look, you just battle. You pitch every inning and get get us through each inning and, and try to survive. And you know, we'll help you." And that's what it was. And uh, just being on that field in front of 
50,000 people was incredible. I gave up back-to-back home runs for Bichette and Helton, but we hit five home runs that game, so <laughs> it's quite an experience. No, I thought you know you had a chance to win a couple games there, so I'm sure within yourself, and I, you know, I, I know this is something that you probably knew all along, but I think this kind of, I'm sure, reinforced a little bit that you had the ability to get hitters out, and this is something that, you know, you probably you probably could have you know gone forward as a major league pitcher. I was hoping, and you know, you, you need time to adjust, and you know, each level there was a learning curve, and you had to learn how to adjust. And you when I got to the Phillies. I had to start in Colorado. Ten days later, another start because Schilling was out five days no matter what, and then there were travel days. So my three starts were ten days apart, each one. And in the meantime, I was just sitting out in the bullpen. So you know, to compete at that level without getting work was was pretty rough. So um, and then again, they went out and signed Robert Burson, who was the closer for the Blue Jays, who threw 98, and we're going to try to groom him to be a starter, and that's when I got shipped out of there, so. And uh, was there there any one moment that stood out for you, either in the major leagues or the minor leagues? Of course, Champielli speaking with Joel Bennett. You know, they kind of just, uh, you know, you just remember and look back on and just say, hey, you know, that that was a great day. There's so many memories. No one thing really stands out. No one moment. Just the people. Uh, That's an incredible you know, strong Christian guys that just love their families and love the game. And, you know, that's what stands out the memories of being around those guys and being in a clubhouse. And I remember Kenny Ryan one time, we were in the, with the Phillies, he was the closer for us. We were sitting in the clubhouse and he went to me and goes, well, you can watch a major league baseball game. And, you know, that really stood out big to me. So little things like that, just meeting great people. Uh, it's, uh, and of course, Joe, you had a chance, you know, to pitch a little bit for, you know, an independent league for the New Jersey Jackals. You know, tell us a little bit about what you felt like was the biggest difference between pitching independent ball and, you know, the combination of pitching ball in the minor leagues and in the majors. That was a tremendous experience because when I went to, you know, I had a pretty good background and coming to the Jackals, the guys knew it there. And when you play independent ball, it's it's one or two people. It's either some guys that have been around a little bit and are trying to hang on, or young guys that never got an opportunity that were just so hungry. And, you know, when I first got there, I was kind of like a father figure some of those younger guys, and, you know, so many questions, and just would sit next to me during the games in the dugout and try to, you know, emulate my, my workout routine. So it was just, it was an amazing experience. I love it just because the kids were so hungry to play, and, uh, success kind of came easy there, um, I, I think just because of the atmosphere. I mean, I, I loved every second of coaching and being able to compete, and it was a wonderful experience.